Well, thank you for wel welcoming us into your home like this. I wish we could do it in person. I, oh, God. Oh, us too. From your lips to God's ears, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So many, so many, so many damn books. So welcome to So Many Damn Books. My name is Christopher. My name is Drew. And we have Ruman Alam in the damn library Zoom in time paradox with us. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I was going to ask if I, if I was permitted to swear, but now I'm getting the sense that damn might be kind of like the keyword here. Yeah, you can, you can swear. <laughs> yeah. you so I'm damn great. Thank you for <laughs> so, Very excited um, to be here. Ruman Alam is the author of the novels Rich and Pretty and That Kind of Mother. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, New York Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, Book Forum, and the New Yorker and elsewhere. He studied at Oberlin and lives in Brooklyn, New York. You don't live far from me. I do not live far from you. In fact, you came to my house today to leave a very tiny bottle of a very delicious cocktail. And not only did you include the tiny very handsome glass bottle. You included the garnish, mm -hmm. which is really an impressive, an impressive attention to detail. I really admire that level. Of <laughs> well, I'm, I, I, it's funny. <clears throat> I feel like it, before the pandemic hit, I was starting to get more and more elaborate with what I was doing at Drew's apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, I at, at the old damn library, I you was did some wild shit. things. I was <laughs> turning things on fire. Um, and now I can't do that, so I've got to do something. Yeah. Um, so why don't we talk about the drink for a second, right? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm drinking it right now, so it's the perfect time. It'll be gone soon, so we should talk about <laughs> it. I still have it. So, um, <clears throat> so your novel is about um, somewhat. It's obviously just about being on vacation. Um, yeah. And so I was thinking about things that are fun about being on vacation and you bring sort of a, um, a you do like sort of a, a an abbreviated bar, I guess, um, if you can. And so I would always, if I was going to just show up at, to an Airbnb, I personally would bring probably either everything to make Negronis because you can do a lot with those three things or everything to make Manhattans because you can do a lot with those two oh. We're and going so, on vacation together sometime. <laughs> I, 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 I want you on my next vacation. Go on, go on. Uh, and so this one, um, it's it's sort of a play with um, Manhattan in that it starts with bourbon and vermouth. And so I got this Carpana Antica vermouth formula. It's so good. It's it, it's like twice as much as like any of your bottom shelf vermouths, but it's so worth it. Um, it's just got a really I don't know, there's there's something else that they're doing. And then um, I just added some grapefruit juice and from our uh, Brooklyn CSA and some grenadine. And this is real grenadine, not roses. Mm. This is um, oh, made actually from yeah. pomegranate juice. Mm -hmm. And um, you shake that up and pour it over ice and you add a, um, I also uh, dried these orange slices myself because what am I wow. doing other than- <laughs> You're really- Putting us to shame there. <laughs> Putting us to air drying shame. stuff at home. So, and I'm calling well, it the no the no GPS punch because the the moment it like you're you know you're on vacation when you're totally off the grid, um, and that's yeah. you know it's always a stress free um, yeah. situation, and uh, <laughs> and this one is just like this will melt the stress away. So I'm calling it the no GPS punch because you're just lost and you can find yourself in the drink. 
Nice. I have a couple of weird things to say. The first is that <laughs> um, my name, <clears throat> as I so or so I have been told by people, and so this is like unfact checked. Um, my name, my first name, means pomegranate. And the connotation is, as one might expect when you're talking about a pomegranate, um, sexual or romantic, but that the actual meaning of the word, um, which is an Arabic word, but I am named for somebody who is Iranian, so it's like a Farsi name that mine is derived from, but it is, a, it is not an uncommon name in sort of uh, cultures where Arabic names are prevalent. Um, but so that's like a funny resonance with your choice to use pomegranate. Um, and the second is that this drink is really delicious. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> really delicious. Yeah. And uh, it is like a Manhattan, but it is like a summer Manhattan, if that makes mm. any sense, Ooh, right? Yeah. Like there's like a there's like a Manhattan that I want to drink when it's cold, like when it's <clears throat> New Year's Eve, and mm -hmm. it has like those really delicious cherries in it, and you know, I always try and persuade the bartender to give me more. And I feel like, I always feel like a sorority girl when I do that. I'm always like, can you give me more cherries? Like, I just, I don't want one. I want like four. Um, <laughs> but there's something very wintry to me about that taste. And this particular mix feels a little summery. And maybe it's the grapefruit. It just has that sort of like a lighter taste that's delicious. I wish you had bought six of them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the Manhattan was my grandfather's drink and he liked to do, um, a little bit of the cherry juice along yeah, with everything. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. that's oh, a yeah. key. It makes yeah. a very nice, very sweet yeah. Manhattan. <laughs> oh, I, love, I really do. Love, I love a Manhattan. Yes. Well, <laughs> and, be. and I think that, and no GPS, of course you were thinking about my book. And I yes. think that, that it's like a very, like a lovely thing to isolate from this book because there is a moment I think as you're saying when when you have ventured off the grid a little bit and your your car gps drops and it doesn't feel scary it feels liberating yes it feels like well it doesn't matter I know where I'm going I I have the printout or whatever and I have the directions and you know it doesn't matter because I don't need to be anywhere I don't need to go one errands I don't need to be connected to the world and um of course in the book I think it's sort of that changes, right? Like the, when you hear that at the beginning of the book, you, you're meant to feel one way. And then when you realize what is happening later in the book, you're meant to feel it another way. Yeah. When, when he is actually driving later, it's one of the most tense moments. And I felt it very, very strongly. Oof. And it made me want yeah. to drink. And so there it is. Yeah. That's a, a, a reasonable feeling. Um, I also I also applaud the ingenuity here in, this, in the construction of this drink because there's a lot of drinking in my book. But mostly they just drink vodka <clears throat> with mm -hmm. lemon, which is because, again, I would like you to come on vacation with me, Christopher, because when mm -hmm. I go on vacation, I just get a bottle of vodka. I get a bottle <laughs> of Tito's or I get a, or I'll get a bottle of Jameson. And that's just what I drink um, on the rocks. And um, I'll, I'll have the vodka with a lemon and I'll put like a big piece of lemon in it to really give it some flavor. And it also kind of feels like you're taking a vitamin. Um, so it's really <laughs> <laughs> and that is what I drink. And so much of this book is... Um, well, this is a, lo a longer investigation, but so much of the book is autobiographical or so much detail, I think in most fiction is autobiographical because that's all writer has is their own frame of reference. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily autobiography that reveals anything. 
it just reveals my personal preference for having a glass of vodka. <laughs> uh, and, but I, I like that you didn't do <coughs> the easy thing of just serving me a vodka with lemon, but you did something unexpected. So A for effort tonight. Oh, thank you. Oh, that, <laughs> as someone who was a grade striver, that means a lot to me. <laughs> but, but before, I want to talk about so much. You've brought up so much that I'm already like chomping at the bit to put the the strictures of our show that we made up um, keep us we from- Carved into the stone it. tablets, yes. Um, we need to talk about what'd you buy. And I do want to know about what you both bought. Uh, Drew, you Drew, can- why, Drew, why don't you go first? Yeah, you I just help. realized that I haven't chosen anything, but I'm going to pull something out of a hat right now. Um, ooh! I'm late to this party. Everybody I know who's read it absolutely raved about it. Uh, even from a friend of mine who works at Penguin Random House, uh, who was reading it in advance of the release. Um, Chanel Miller's Know My Name. Mm. Uh, my book club is reading it. And I've had a book club that's been running for almost 10 years now. Um, and its members have changed over time and again. Uh, I think there's only two of us, three of us now who are original, original members and everybody gets to nominate a couple of books and then we choose from that. And this was one of the two finalists and one of the members of the book club wrote this really lovely email that was just like, hey, I'm excited to read this book. And actually it's my, my pick of all of these, but also, um, you know, I don't know all of you as well as some of the rest of you know each other and how how do we all feel about potentially talking about sexual assault and has violence happened to anybody like how how do we all feel um and it was just it was this really marvelous moment of disparate friends of mine just like showing that they are all the most wonderful lovely human beings and it mm. has made me somehow even more anticipatory to read this book and to talk about it with a group of just beautiful, wonderful, brilliant, caring humans. Um, and so I'm, I'm so very stoked to jump into it. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I've heard, I, I haven't read that book, but I have heard probably as you have really such remarkable things about it. Mm -hmm. um, not, not only as a document of this woman Schnell's particular experience, which is obviously horrific, but about her ability to, to write yeah. That she that in addition to being very candid about her experience with violence and sitting in the very uncomfortably in the in a very public in the very public eye, um, but that she's actually a very gifted writer, which I think is interesting and that's exciting. And um, yeah, I hear really good things about that one. Yeah, I'm jazzed. Ruman, how about you? Well, you know, I'm in this weird position of getting a lot of books. Um, I get books to blurb. I get books from publicists because I write about books at times. Um, I get books from my friends. And so I receive a lot, like a lot is always coming into me. And when I think about um, what I think the point of this exercise is, is to get people excited about books that I want them to go out and buy. So I'm going to talk about books that I may not have bought myself, but that I definitely think other people should go out and buy. Um, and there are <clears throat> three books that I want to mention. The first is Ayat Akhtar's Homeland Elegies, which is oh, cool. uh, a novel that came to me um, at some point this summer. The galley landed in my mail, and uh, 
I, Ayad and I share an agent, which is a little like being siblings. <laughs> and um, I was very curious to read the book. I had heard such wonderful things about his work. And it is a book that I took with me on vacation. And I read it in two days. It is a big fat book, but I really devoured it uh, on these two days of vacation. It is a beautiful book. It is really fascinating. The strategy of the novel is very unusual because it really feels like you're reading memoir, but it's telling you that it is a novel. Mm. And you have to kind of respect the game of that and you have to kind of wonder what is gained by situating the life inside of the fiction. It's a really interesting book about America. You know, it's about post 9-11 America. I really loved it. I, I recommend it very, very highly. Another book that I absolutely loved is Brian Washington's debut novel, which is called Memorial, um, which is such a beautiful book. It's such an interesting book. I had a really lovely conversation with Brian last week, actually. And he, I, I don't want to quote him, but I'll give you the substance of kind of what he was getting at. But he was getting at his own sense that the book is oddly shaped, that the book kind of... Mm is a strange construction that maybe doesn't resolve in the sense of, it doesn't, maybe doesn't provide narrative closure by design. And his concern, or maybe just his, his awareness that he was trying to do something that resisted being shaped like a conventional novel. And I really think that that is an accurate statement. Like I do think it is a very unusually shaped book. Cool. But his, con his concern about whether or not people will like it is, misplaced because it is absolutely beautiful. It is truly, it is, it is rewarding in a way that is really wonderful. I, I said to him that it felt to me like a memory of something that had happened in my own life, which is a very intimate way to feel about a novel. Um, it's a beautiful book. And the third book, I don't know when this is airing. I'm reviewing this book, but I will like throw caution to the wind and say it because <laughs> it was very exciting to get to write a rave review. One of the very, very best books I've read this year it's a book called Self-Portrait, and it is a memoir by the English artist Celia Paul. It is being published in this country by New York Review Books. Mm. It is such an extraordinary book. You don't have to know Celia Paul's work to be thrilled by the book. Um, Celia Paul, when she was a much younger woman, had a quite long affair with the painter Lucian Floyd, who was many years her elder. And you don't have to know that. You don't have to care about Lucian Freud. You don't even really have to care about art. It's a really interesting book about a single artist's development and the growth of her own understanding of who she is. And I said to a friend when I was raving about this book, I said that this is a memoir that out novels the novel. Ooh. And that is how I felt about it. I just, it's such a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. Wow, that sounds cool. awesome. Makes me think of that uh, Myla Goldberg. That is the novel of like the. Oh, about the photographer. Eyes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that there is something about that sort of like artist development narrative that I I am a sucker for in me too. in fiction or nonfiction. But C Celia Paul's memoir, what 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 felt different to me about it is her ability to write sort of as I was saying about Chanel Miller, right? Like mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a large body of important memoir about violence, about survivorship. There's, you know, like, and that's important as, um, as a, it's an important repository of like information and, and feeling. 
-hmm. And so it's maybe not, maybe it's less important to talk about it as a matter of art. It's less, it, it matters less if the book is well-written, if it contains an important truth or an important perspective. But when the book is well-written, then it sort of becomes a different thing altogether. And there's certain memoirs that I think I feel this way about, like Girl Interrupted is a great example Ooh, of a yeah. memoir of a young woman's experience of, of madness or mental instability. It's a very common thing to encounter memoir that in, interrogates that, but it's rare to encounter memoir that interrogates that at a very high level of the sentence. And I feel like Celia Paul's book is operating at this sort of Rachel Cusk level of construction, cool. which is maybe not what you would expect from someone who makes a living as a painter. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. That's my rave. Christopher, what have you been buying? <laughs> um, I bought, uh, I, I was very excited about Lev Grossman um, returning to books and go, he wrote a middle reader novel called The Silver Arrow. And um, I ordered it a long time. I pre-ordered it actually, but my pre-order has been lost in the mail for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, and no. I just received it. <laughs> And it was like maybe even sweeter for having been lost for so long. <laughs> it's one of those things that makes you realize how easy it is to put rose-colored glasses on your memory. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited about this book. I don't know a lot about it, but I feel like he has so many ideas about um, the Narnia books and, and those launched mm -hmm. him so much into his yeah. trilogy that it makes sense that he was like, maybe I could read my own Narnia because I feel like this yeah. is the beginning of a series for him. And I'm really excited about it. And then I've read this book before. I'm almost positive I've raved about this book before on this podcast, but I didn't go and check. Um, I got the audio book of Three Bags Full by Leonie Swan. And this, for those who don't, don't remember <laughs> my raving about it, it's, um, it's a mystery novel um, narrated by sheep. Um, they're... Their shepherd is dead at the beginning of the book, and it it follows all the sheep. There are two sheep that are like the most working on the case, and they are a sheep named um, Maple and Morple. And so it's like, oh, they're very close to being a Miss Marple, maybe together. Um, and just like listening to sheep logic in this person who's doing a fantastic voice um josephine bailey is the person reading it and um all of these they're all scottish or they have different um different levels of that accent so she's actually giving a lot of personality to the sheep in a way that was really nice i remember the printed copy of the book if you flipped the pages it had like hopping sheep on the page numbers <laughs> <laughs> um and this is it's a translated book um and there's three, there's two more in the series, but they, those two never got translated into English. Only this one got oh, translated no. and it's so, so good. And um, I just love here, like the sheep have an idea of Europe, but it's just that it's full of meadows and flowers. And so they're always <laughs> like wishing they could go to Europe because that's what they heard about as some sort of paradise from their shepherd. And it's just little details like that that just make it completely delightful. And anytime they're scared, they just assume that it's a wolf making them scared. I feel like I'm, I'm getting into the sheep mindset. 
And so I, uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's so much fun. And I'm just listening to it and walking around and being in sheep head and being inside of a sheep's head. It's so much better than being inside of a human's head right now. So um, it's, it's, it's a great all-encompassing listen. Um, so that's what I've bought. Nice. Let's talk about Leave the World right. Behind, the main Let's event. I Can fucking loved it? this book so much, Ruman. I read, I did not. I mean, all right, we could end now. I mean, what else is there to say? <laughs> it feels so rare that I pick up a book that I literally can't put down anymore. And some of that is just because life is busy. But I picked yeah. it up intending to like, I'll just read the first chapter, the first 15 pages or something. And I read the whole goddamn thing in the morning. Just because I, I could not put it down. And I really had no idea that it was going to be so page-turningly gripping. Um, it, it has a, I don't know, it has a very um, bucolic vibe, an idyllic vibe. Leave yeah. the world behind. It's a pool on the cover. Yeah. So I'm curious to know off the bat how you are describing this book to people. That is a tough question to answer. And I wish that I was at, I wish I had really honed a stump speech about how to talk about this book. <laughs> I think that, I think that I, I'm normally not someone who believes in spoilers or any of that stuff as pertains to a book, right? Because a book is a book and it's a, it's a closed concluded experience. And, you know, knowing whatever, you know, it, it's hard for someone to argue to me that knowing something about a book can spoil your experience of reading it. But I do think that this book is propelled by a kind of momentum that you can only really achieve if you really don't know too much about what it's going to do, what mm -hmm. the book is trying to do. Um, so I suppose what I would say if I were like, in an elevator or whatever. What, what is it, like that mythical place where you're making small talk about yourself having a party? <laughs> I mean, none of, none of us are getting into elevators or going to parties, so this skill is sort of rusty, <laughs> but I would say that it is a book about a family on vacation, It's which it is. It's a family who goes on vacation and the vacation takes an unexpected turn. And that unexpected turn is that the owners of the vacation house, which they rented through Airbnb, show up on the doorstep. Uh, the second night of their vacation, and uh, they say they need to stay with them, that something has happened out in the world, and they need to they've come to this house because they didn't know where else to go. And I guess I would get out there, right, in service of not spoiling it. I, I'm not saying that we have to not talk about what happens. Like, I'm happy to talk. I don't really care. Um, but I think that's sort of how I would present, like, the premise and sort of try to make that sound maybe a little more alluring than I just did, but I didn't have a cocktail, so. Um, and I'm happy to hear that, Drew, you had this experience of feeling stuck. I mean, I really wanted the book to feel like you were stuck inside of it. I wanted it to mm. feel like a glue trap and that you were a mouse and that once you ventured onto it, you couldn't get out of it. And, um, so that was the that was the aspiration, and you know I don't know if every reader will have that experience, but hearing that any reader did is really thrilling to me. It's interesting to hear you say like glue trap and mouse. There's such careful um, word choice in this book that I really, as I mean, 
Christopher and I are both huge readers. That's why we do this. And it feels kind of silly to say that like, I am so gratified when a book, when every word is so, you're like, ooh, you chose the right word. You, you didn't go for the easy one. You went for the one that was going to evoke a feeling. And there's so much language in this book that even at the very beginning, I was like, God, that's an awfully, that's an awfully menacing adjective to use. And I, you, you've kind of already answered this, but I would love to hear you just talk a little bit more maybe about sort of how much, what kind of intention went into really structuring the vibe of the book. Yeah. I want to jump on the back of that and just say it's, it's this tension that you create and it feels like you're mm -hmm. plucking different strings like you've got. And so I, I, the creation of tension in particular, like, do you have methods for that? Or do you, do you have people that you're like, they do it well and I try to do it like them? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think Drew isolated something important, which is that it's less to me a matter of attention related to the withholding of information, for example, or like a particular plot structure and more to do with the language. Because I find plot very difficult, very, very difficult. And I did read books that are maybe more interested in plot um, as a way of understanding how those writers create these books that are like wonderful confections that millions of readers love dearly because they work on them because they scare them or they, they, they surprise them. But that even if my book aspired to trap a reader or work on them with the same kind of authority that say Stephen King is working on his readers with, my, the way I deploy that I think is through language and detail as opposed to sort of the structure of a story. And so when Drew talks about the adjectives feeling menacing, I think it's right. And I think, I think, I, I mean, I, I, I'm happy, I'm gratified to hear that. Of course I think it's right because he's saying something nice while I work. But like, um, <laughs> I, I think that, that there's a level of attention to the word choice or to the detail that's provided. We hear the very first, here's an example, I think, that is instructive. The very first sentence of the book is, well, the sun was shining. And the book begins with this qualification this, this notion of like, well, the sun was shining. And it establishes some something like, the implication seems to me from the narrative voice to be, there was this one good thing, which is that the sun is shining. And so immediately on some level, the reader is primed to be looking for what is the bad thing. And from there, the book is, the narrative is very interested in these very animal details of how the people smell or the ways in which they're kind of annoying one another or the sound of them chewing their food or um, it's a very close look at these people, but it's not like a beautiful look. And I think it establishes a sense of, I suppose menace, but I think that that, that clarity comes retroactively or retrospectively. Once you once the book reaches a certain point and you realize that there's been a sinister thing kind of lurking in the book all throughout. Um, but I think it's about that attention to the language. And I I was having a lot of fun with the word choice, you know, and I think you kind of correctly identified that. Like I was having fun with the way the words sound and uh, that they 
contain a kind of precision, almost as though this is a story being relayed to you by somebody who's reading to you at night. Like it has, like the narrative, I think, takes on this sense of almost like a parent reading you a bedtime story. Although yeah. no parent should ever read this to their children. Um, <laughs> and um, the other thing I would say that I think was very instructive, although I, I will confess that I did not reread it. So here's, this is a book, I wonder if you've ever had this experience. This is a book that I love so much that I'm scared to reread it because I'm scared that on rereading my, I will lose access to my primal, like fierce devotion to it. Yep. And that it's uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, mm, which is to me such an extraordinary book in almost every way that you would evaluate a book. But in particular, the thing that I was really thinking about <coughs> that I think his book does extraordinarily well is that every chapter asks, let's say, five questions and every succeeding chapter answers one of those questions and introduces five more. So you're getting more information as the book progresses, but only just enough to keep you invested in figuring out what's happening. But as you're getting more information, your confusion actually compounds almost exponentially. And then there's a certain point in the book where it cracks and you suddenly understand everything about the world that he's building. And once you do, what happens to you is that your heart breaks apart uh -huh. because it is mm -hmm. so effective and it's such an emotional experience. You realize that what you have thought was kind of a broken realism is in fact this very deranged and specific dystopic universe. And mm -hmm. once that once that realization happens, the your relationship to everything in the book changes. Yeah. But it's so masterful how he does it because when you begin the book, you think it is a book about people at boarding school. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd love to talk to you about the, uh, something that you said earlier. You said um, so, so, so much detail is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And part of what endeared me to the book right away was um, the grocery shopping before the Airbnb trip. <laughs> like, I was just like that where you're like, you're on vacation. So you're going to spend $140 on like maybe eight things accidentally. And like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just want to want to know, do you draw a line? Is there something that you're, is, is it okay for all of this stuff because you're drawing it into fiction or is there some things that you're like, that's too real or, mm -hmm. or too, I want to keep that detail private. I do think a lot about the ethical and moral complexity of what I do for a living. Hmm. You know, I am conscious of the fact that I can write about my life, but can I write about my spouse's life and my children's lives? So I'm very aware of that stuff and I'm really thinking about it. When I talk about the autobiographical detail that's hidden inside of all of my books, what I'm talking about is the texture of the universe and it's sort of meaningless. And it's only identifiably autobiography if you already know me. And it doesn't really reveal the self. It does reveal like the class, right? So like when I go on vacation, I go to like 
we usually vacation on Fire Island and we go to the grocery store, not a nice grocery store, just like a stop and shop in town before we get on the ferry. And it is like supermarket sweep. I run in there <laughs> and I spend so much money on like a plastic box of arugula and a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos and like an organic olive oil. And, you know, when we go on vacation, like Christopher, you mentioned that you, when you go to an Airbnb, you're going to be bringing Negroni fixings. When I go on vacation, I bring a sharp knife from home because Airbnbs never have a good knife. And I bring a jar of Malden salt. So Ooh. when I go to the grocery store, I'm like grabbing all of that other basic stuff expensive olive oil, a thing of mustard, you know, a head of garlic, whatever. And it quickly becomes hundreds of dollars. And it's like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just middle class enough that I can reach a couple of weeks and like buy the organic nectarines and be like, fuck it. I don't care if they're $5.99. They're going to taste like mid-July and I want them and I want that experience. And I also am going to say like, fuck it, I'm going to buy these Entenmann's Donuts, which I describe <laughs> in the book, which I always buy when we go on vacation because they're so fucking delicious. And my kids, like, that's the treat for them. You know, we're mm -hmm. on vacation. They get up at, my kids get up at 545 because they're insane. And <laughs> they're up at 545 and they're like, I want a donut. Like, we'll get a donut out of this box of donuts and go and walk on the beach. And what could be more, to me, that is like the very that is the like the seminal experience for me of being on this holiday with my family is eating this like crappy processed donut and walking on the beach in your sweatshirt because it's 6am it contains a universe of emotion that I can access mm -hmm. but no one who doesn't really know me can mm -hmm. the function I hope of this scene in which the protagonist of the book goes grocery shopping and you just hear what she's buying is that you identify either that like that also represents you or that you understand who this person is. You mm -hmm. understand the kind of person who's going to buy the organic cilantro and you can feel what it feels like when you pick up that cellophane bag of the organic cilantro and there's sand at the bottom. Or you understand, or you are yourself that person who buys the heirloom tomatoes and the heirloom tomatoes are all lumpy and weird and they're all weird colors and they're in this like funny bin and they're covered with this really crinkly cellophane and they're like $14 but they're <laughs> only good that you know they're only good that week and you want them because they taste amazing and you're on vacation and like whatever you've already spent a thousand dollars renting a house so you might as well just spend $14 more to get these tomatoes so the details provide access not to the authorial self because that's limited and uninteresting and no one could no, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a dead end. To know that I eat those donuts is a dead end. But what the detail can provide you is a sense of who that person is, who that imagined person is. Mm -hmm. And it, it reflects back on your own understanding of who you are. And that's sort of like the lens through which you read. And it's also the lens through which you write. I once had this conversation with the writer Samantha Hunt, who I think mm. is a crazy genius. Oh, truly a so, crazy genius. so good. Yeah. And I, I truly think she is a genius and just a, an incredible writer. And we were talking about her book, The Dark Dark. And I had asked her about um, a motif that recurred in multiple stories. And what she said to me is that fundamentally that's meaningless. It's a game that she's playing with herself. 
you know, she's dropping in these things that might be meaningful to her. These might be personal totems, or they might just be things that she's decided to build into all of her fictions, but it's not, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And I think that's very, I think that's very interesting. I think it's the kind of thing that like, the writer doesn't get to dictate what something means. Your job is done. Once the book is done, you, you're out. So if someone else wants to say there's significance in a detail that I'm explaining to you is autobiographical, that's fine. It's not my argument to make. But fundamentally, the writing of fiction, I think, depends on all of this subjective observation that you have to think is autobiogra autobiography by definition, because you can't verify that the sky that you see as blue is the sky that other people see. Mm -hmm. It's always limited to your own psyche, to your own perspective. So in a way, that's all you have to work with. That's all you have to go on. I really like that. It's it remind yeah. it makes me think of like Easter eggs in old school video games, yeah. where like yeah. it's it's for you in a way. It's a it's you getting to be like, yeah, fuck it. On vacation, we drink vodka with a big wedge of lemon. <laughs> Precisely. It was just and it, it maybe it's just paucity of imagination. Also, maybe it's just me like reaching for what's closest at hand when constructing a fictional universe. Like it's hard to answer. But um, there's a scene in the book where Ruth who is the homeowner, describes um, a piece of music from Swan Lake. And that is purely me. That is, my that is one of my favorite pieces of music. And I listen to Swan Lake a lot when I'm writing. Although, interestingly, I did not listen to it when I was writing this book. I listened to it when I was writing my last book. Um, that particular piece of music that she is talking about is, I think, one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in my life. I don't know if there's any meaning there for anyone but me. Hmm. Unless, hmm. You, unless you break up, unless you queue up Spotify and as you're reading, listen to it and like try and understand what I'm feeling. But even then, I don't know if that illuminates anything for you. It's simply- Do you do that? Reaching for a reference. Do I do that? Do I listen to music when I'm reading something? I was thinking about this when you were talking about that, um, the artist's memoir that I'll probably hmm. look up her work while I read hmm. that memoir. Uh, and like when, yeah, when that Swan Lake piece came into the book, I was like, oh, I want to know what that is. And I like went and like listened to some of it and like continued oh, reading. Oh, that makes me so happy. That <laughs> makes me so, so happy. Did you like it? Oh, Do you remember? Yeah, I, I absolutely, I loved it. And I also love adding that type of texture to my reading experience because like I, I love I love a like sort of a, an illuminated manuscript, if you will. Yeah, yeah. This is an example that people are going to scoff at, maybe. But uh, the Da Vinci Code, there was this. They released this um, version that was completely illustrated and had oh, yeah. every single piece of art that he yeah. was referencing, as well as some like notation to, to say what you know the symbologist was talking about. And it was a, it made that reading experience so much more meaningful because it's not just the reference, it's right there. And so I've, yeah. I've felt like yeah. I've always been trying to recreate that reading experience because that's, it's a great way to experience a book. I mean, how old are you guys? 32. 33. So you're in your 30s. So you're, 
a decade younger than me. And in a way, what you're describing is like an experience of hypertext, right? Like the idea yeah. that once you're inside of a text that's referring to something, you can have immediate access to the referent and that it clarifies your understanding of the text that you're primarily engaged in. That's a technological innovation, right? And so when you're reading a novel that is talking about, that's being elusive with respect to like Shakespeare or Dickens or whatever, you, that, that illusion may be very plain, but it's unlikely that you're going to pick up, that you're going to stop your reading and go to the shelf and take out Lear and figure out like, you know, the nature of the reference, right? It's often like thematic. It's not, it's not just like mm -hmm. a mention of a particular scene or something. But when you talk about the Da Vinci Code, which relies in some way on your being able to see something, and then the text is providing you that visual, I can see how that would be really enriching. And again, I think like the way Tchaikovsky operates inside of my novel, it's not important. You don't need to know what she's talking about. All she's talking about is her own relationship to art, right? And her own desire to like, experience something that you cannot experience and it's music for a reason mm -hmm. because music you cannot access you can't like you can kind of remember king lear so if you were on a desert island you could like piece together what happens in king lear you could talk it through you may not be able to access like a soliloquy but you might even be able to land on a phrase right like um how sharper than a serpent's tooth, right? Or some detail from that text that you could hold on to. Music, you can't, like, unless you can sing, I suppose, unless you have, like, pitch, you can't, like, crack it in the same way. And so it's music for that reason. And when choosing a piece of music that I wanted her to talk about, I just went with something that I felt really strongly about. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about the the internality of things and the way that we individually process things because as the book goes on and gets deeper into, I also am, I, I want people to experience it for themselves. And so I'm going to dance a little bit around it. But as the, as the book hurdles towards its climax, there are these things that, that feel like you have to kind of make an emotional, mental judgment about how you're going to engage with what's happening in the text because it starts to I mean it feels like dream logic it feels like like one of my favorite filmmakers is David Lynch because every time I watch one of his movies even when I'm re-watching it things hit me differently images or experiences hit differently and they're kind of meant to because they're dissociated at times from the things around them or not necessarily dissociated but in some way just a little bit unmoored from what you expect to happen. And I'm thinking particularly about um, an image I haven't been able to get out of my head involving teeth towards the mm -hmm. end of the book. Mm -hmm. that, and I, mm -hmm. I, it's so interesting to hear you talk about some of these other things that happen earlier in the book or even your creation of it, because it's just, it's giving me a lot of food for thought and context about some of those weirder, more dissociative parts that come towards the end of the book? I think Lynch is an interesting referent in this conversation because the universe operates with a logic that eludes the audience. And the experience of watching the film is trying to like, trying to accept that logic. You can't comprehend it, but you just try to accept it, right? Yeah. So like Mulholland Drive, like, you just try to accept the tacit deceit that Mulholland Drive 
is performing and you're like, okay, this, fine. She is her now. Like, I got <laughs> it. Like, that, totally, that makes sense. Even though it doesn't make sense. And in my book, I think the destabilization comes in a shift from a wholly logical and realist world that slowly becomes really unstable. So even if there's a sense of menace in the early language, where I mentioned before, I'm talking about how these people smell. I'm describing the car by saying the windows are tinted to keep cancer at bay. I'm finding these like unsettling things to mention about the world, but generally what you're seeing is like a middle-class white family going on vacation. And so you kind of think it's going to be a book about people on vacation and their foibles. And like, there's a whole convention of literature about people in a new place and the new place brings to light like hidden trauma or like, you know, I think that this book seems to be for the first 30 pages, a book about a couple who is either going to get a divorce or like have a reconciliation, <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. it seems like that is what it's trying to do. And then it destabilizes you by becoming something entirely different, which is a book about these two, these people confronting these strangers. And then these strangers stay in the house with them. And so there are six people who don't know one another in one house, in one territory, and they're trying to figure out what is happening. And the logic of what is happening keeps changing in ways that sometimes the characters see and sometimes the reader sees. And so you have access to different information than the characters do. The teeth in particular, um, yeah, so something happens to one of the characters' teeth later in the book. And what I was thinking about, because I am a parent, is there's a particular sweetness to a little kid's gummy mouth when their first little milk teeth fall out. And it's an image that I find really like powerful and like it's a very primal parental thing. It's very sweet. It's disgusting because biology is kind of gross and a lot of the experience of dealing with small children is gross and very <laughs> bodily. But it's something that I've always thought was real. I love the phrase milk teeth. In fact, I think it's like a really beautiful phrase, um, even though I'm personally really repulsed by milk as a word and a thing. I think <laughs> so revolting. Um, but I, I used, I, like I used the phrase milk teeth in my previous book and I have a scene where Princess Diana, the late Princess Diana is talking about Prince William's teeth falling out and how sweet she thinks it is. There's something very sweet about your child's teeth falling out. There's something very horrifying about an adult's teeth falling out. And we have all had, and it's primal, it's like the kind of thing that would be in like the dream dictionary. We've all had a dream that we have a biology final that we didn't remember we had. We've all had a dream that something has happened to our teeth. Um, and so there's a particular anxiety that it presses on. It feels to me both random and invested with like a lot of like symbolic luggage, right? Like th as yeah. a symbol, it's coming with a lot of luggage. It's coming with a lot of baggage and like the reader knows it when she sees it. I'm curious about your relationship to horror and sci-fi as genres, because this book isn't, I wouldn't, necessarily just say that this book is is sci-fi or say that this book is horror but you're playing with those tropes i mean there there is the 
there's another horror trope of like the family going on vacation and everything really yep. being beautiful. They're like yep. picking up things and they're going to have a really nice time and everyone goes swimming because that's the best. And then like yep. night falls. Um, yep. and, then, <laughs> and there's a little bit of and then night falls about this yep. book. Um, For sure. And so I'm just curious about what you were you playing with any of those tropes as well? Is that something that you wanted to do? It is something I wanted to do. Um, and I generally think that conversation or conversations about genre are really silly, especially when they're being had among people who write what we like to call literary fiction, as though that were not itself a genre right. with its own conventions, right? So the liter like this is a this is a book that is messing with genre, but it is ultimately the genre it is messing with is not horror or science fiction, it's literary fiction. Mm-hmm. It's taking the stuff of middle-class people and their professional and personal discontent, and it is showing that, it is elevating that into something else altogether. It's changing, like, the personal anguish into, like, an existential anguish. Mm-hmm. And it is definitely using, there's so many conventions that I'm deploying in the book and have, I mean, I had fun doing that. Like, as you said, Christopher, people piling into a car is one kind of like narrative convention. The stranger turning up on the doorstep is another convention. The stranger turning up on the doorstep and turning out to be black is a wholly other convention. Um, the people having a sort of convivial experience with a hint of menace just beneath it is another convention. They sit down and they start drinking. These people all start drinking. And I was thinking about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? Like people having martini after martini after martini and suddenly everything feels really heightened and crazy. Um, The child going missing. The one person in the party separating from the others to get to the bottom of things and encountering peril. It's all these different tropes that I'm deploying. And it's not stuff that I know from a a deep readership into horror. It's more that this is just the texture of horror cinema, horror narrative generally. Like, you don't even really have to know that work to understand that these are the storytelling strategies. And I don't know how you categorize this book. And I think every reader would sort of file it differently. I don't know, I mean, I talked about it as horror for a time, but I don't think that's true. And I don't know if that would satisfy readers who really know horror and who really care about it. I feel that they might be disappointed by what this book is ultimately doing. Hmm. Similarly with science fiction, there's no revelation. There's no alien ship. There's no like strange technology. There's no clarification. And I feel like science fiction depends on a kind of clarity about the universe you're reading about right like it's it's almost the opposite of david lynch where science fiction mm-hmm. has to have a governing logic and it has to be very clear to you in order to get into it um it's not a mystery even though there's a sense of mystery in the book because there's no answer there's no solution and nothing is more frustrating to people who read mysteries to be told hey this is a mystery but we'll never we're never going to tell you who committed the murder <laughs> you know that would drive people crazy um, you know, to be clear, there's not even a murder in this book. So it's it's like, there's a lot of sense of something really bad 
but you never really see the bad thing. Mm-hmm. And to me, ultimately, the genre that does that, the genre that cares deeply about like, uh, like a lack of accountability in a weird way, is the liter is the genre of literary fiction, right? You know, mm-hmm. and so I think that is like primarily what I'm toying with. You brought a book to us that is. I think full throttle literary fiction as like, oh, for sure. as she oh, is for writ. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and for sure. existential <laughs> dread. Uh, yeah. It, it's all about existential dread and um, not a single tooth falls out. I don't think. Um, but uh, Lynn Steaker Strong's want. Um, and yeah. I'm curious, what made you want to talk about that book with us? Lynn is one of my dearest friends and she is a writer who I rely on so much as um, a coach, like to keep me motivated, as an intellect, like she reads my work and I read her work and I, I, I value her opinion and her perspective so much. Um, and we're just friends, like I just love her and we're just, she's a dear friend. And we were writing these books sort of simultaneously. Mm. And so they've been published kind of simultaneously. And as different as our books are, I think that there's a lot of shared territory. It's just the strategy of the narrative is quite different. Want to me, I had a, I had an experience not unlike Drew's experience reading my book where I started reading it and I couldn't get out of it. I just fell headlong into it. It's a book that is almost breathless in its pacing. Um, and that's remarkable to me because it's it's locked inside of one character's mind. Yeah. That is like the dominant mode of the literary novel right now, especially is like the single consciousness. And it is not always in a comfortable place to be. And it is certainly not always a compelling place to be, or I shouldn't say that. It can be very compelling, but it is rare for me that it is compelling to the point of flipping through the pages. I can put Ben Lerner down for the night. I can put Rachel Cusk down for the night. And it's a, it doesn't, I'm, that's not to suggest that those are not deeply pleasurable reading experiences, but I can get out of them. Lynn's book to me, I can't get out of. There, there's a lot of running in the book and Lynn is a runner. And to me, it embodies that feeling of like you're running and you're locked inside of your own brain. And you're trying to like, you're trying to think and you're also trying to stay motivated to keep running. And you're like, I just have to run. I just have to keep going. I have to make it to like the end of the block or make it two miles or whatever arbitrary goal you've set for yourself. And that's how the book works. And um, I think it's a really beautifully done book about contemporary life. I think in this tiny sliver of a one person with very specific set of circumstances, Lynn gets to, she gets to talk about so much. She talks Mm. about class, she talks about anxiety, she talks about intellect, she talks about aspiration, she talks about what's happening to the planet, she talks about her relationship to her children or like one's relationship to one's children, I should say. You know, it's a book about being a mother, it's a book about being a daughter, it's a book about being a citizen. I think it's really an extraordinary book. It's, I, I love talking about it. I've read it three times. I think it's such a great book. I, you know, and I ha- I chose it tonight just from that, like, oh, my own <coughs> personal feeling of like, 
pride and affection in my friend who made this marvelous thing. Like there's, there's something to that, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. when you know someone well and you're like, wow, I can't believe you can like do this. It's amazing. You know? I, I know exactly what you mean. I had that um, experience actually uh, once Drew and his wife um, have had a band and I remember going to see them live and they were inc- they were just excellent. Just like such a good like rock band, like incredible. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, you have this other thing. So yeah. I completely know what you mean by your friend also is like an incredible, like that's, that's a whole, um, anyway. Oh, geez. But- <laughs> <laughs> that layer of personal affection like can enrich that artistic experience. Yes. Yeah. But obviously it's not imperative, right? Like, and the thing to me about Lynn's book, and like, it's just one of those books, I, I do this a lot when I teach. I talk a lot about this mythical person who reads three books a year. There, that's a big readership. There, there yeah. are a lot of people out in this country who read like three to five books a year. They care, they, they care about books. Maybe they can't make the time. Maybe they just don't, they don't know what, what it is they're supposed to be reading. And so they'll pick up whatever, whatever they see in People Magazine or whatever Oprah has told them, or like maybe somebody just forces a book on them and says, you've got to read you know, the love affairs of Nathaniel P. Like, this is the one, I want you to read it. And they'll read it and they'll love it. And then it ends there. And to me, that is what want is. It is a book that like a snob like me or you guys who reads like 100 books a year can read it and be like, wow, this is a marvelously built thing. But it is also a book that yields like a ripe fruit to someone who doesn't read a ton, but who cares about books. And it will make you think, and it's... (coughs) The strategy of it is complex, but it's also very accessible. And I think that's also a really hard space to negotiate, to make something that is operating at a high level of language and intellect, but that is greeting the reader warmly. Yeah. It's like pulling the reader close. You know, I love, I'm a snob and I love opacity. I love complexity. I love like a thorny literary book that doesn't even care if I read it or not, you know, like, <laughs> like, like, like the hot standoffish guy that you loved in college. Like, I love that experience <laughs> of a book, but I really value a, a writer who understands how to reach for her reader, how to take mm-hmm. her reader by the hand. I think that is, I think, and in fact, I might go so far as to say, I think that is undervalued by a mm. lot of my peers. Mm. It embraces you in a way even despite the fact that it it's dealing with difficult like i've never read a book that deals so openly with bankruptcy in a in a way that is not judgmental in a way that feels like the conversations that i have with my friends as we're like trying to fight for salary transparency you know it like yeah it just it it feels yeah like your friend which is cool because yeah. i've never met lynn there's an intimacy to the way the book sounds um there's an immediacy it feels very contemporary but the ability again i think it's just in that access the ability to access a frank conversation feels really rare it really feels really rare and i i think it's telling that i'm I'm struggling to think of other books that are similarly complex or talking about uh, you know interesting substantial political material but are doing it in a way that is like you know it's not performing its own importance for itself. It is not mm. up its own ass. It is not overly invested in its own discharge of language or simile or like com- complex form. Like it's kind of naked 
There's something raw about it, but it is by design, you know, and I think that's really remarkable. Yeah. We haven't told our listeners what this book is about. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> in like that in like important. so many terms. Yeah. Do you want to do it? Do you want to do you want to take a stab? At no. The you, no. You should. Okay. <laughs> Want is the story of a young mother with very young children living in Brooklyn. She is a an expensively educated professional who is only able to uh, earn a living as a high school teacher, and so she is someone who's invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in an education, who is making tens of thousands of dollars propagating education. She is trapped in a lot of systems that are not working for her. And uh, the principle, sort of like the animating energy of the book is a concern about money, concern about like the family is going to declare bankruptcy and they don't have money and they don't know how they're going to survive. Um, the protagonist is, from an upper middle class family. She has a complex relationship to that family. She has a complex relationship to a dear friend from girlhood. It's a book that really looks at motherhood. It looks at class. It looks at like the anxiety of overeducated people in their thirties. And anyone who lives in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Washington DC is gonna be like, wow, I know a lot of these people. I know a lot of these people <laughs> who spent a lot of money on a really good education and thought that that would be enough yeah. to launch them into an American dream that really doesn't exist anymore. Mm. It really doesn't pertain anymore. And that particular awakening is very difficult for people. And that is what the book is talking about, I think. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. That's how I experience it. If I was going to like do a this meets that, I don't know how helpful this would be to people, but it's like Marlena by Julie Bunton meets Optic mm. Nerve by Maria Gonza. Oh gosh, that's, that is really interesting. Optic, because it does have that, as with Optic Nerve, it has that sustained attention to like looking straight at something, mm -hmm. looking straight at the circumstances of the protagonist's life. That's an interesting analog. They both ex escape into art, you know, in, in Maria yes, Gans's novel, right. it's, it's actually right. painting, but in, in um, Want, it's, it's about literature. And, yeah. and the book sort of function, the way that, that she uses novels reminds me of how some writers use dreams. Like it, 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 they stand um, in for the emotion or how she's reacting to them. Mm -hmm. Like you can sort of extrapolate why this book now, like why this mentioned now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it's it's like you were saying before about, in my book, like the use of Tchaikovsky or something, like this sort of hypertext reading, like if it makes, if you understand the book being referred to, it enriches your experience of reading the book. But if you don't understand, if you don't know that book, I don't think it diminishes the experience, mm -hmm. but hopefully it will press on your own curiosity and make you want to read the books that is citing throughout her own book. Um, and I guess it makes me think also of what I said before about the writer Samantha Hunt, like writers, like you need, you're building a house of cards. And so, and, but you are manufacturing the cards, right? Like the cards are the things that you care about. It's like the books you care about, the music you care about, the people you know, the idiosyncrasies of people you've observed in your own life, and you're just assembling them into something. And so the finished product is made up of all these things that you've stolen from your life or your own experience, but it in no way really resembles 
your life. Right. Yeah. Oh, I really like that. I feel like we could talk about um, so many books with you and just continue into like want is like one of the shorter books. Um, I actually listened to it and it's under six hours long as far as an audio books. And that's very short for an audio book. <laughs> yeah. It's a, but, it's a oh, lean book. It, um, but it's an incredible, uh, it's incredibly dense, but I feel like we should probably get into recommendations before we get completely lost. Sure. Do you want to start? I've been spending um, quarantine discovering Kevin Wilson's work. Um, I I read Nothing to See Here, and then um, I just have fallen backwards into reading everything that he has, which is not that much right now. Um, but his debut novel, The Family Fang, I um I just uh, I just read it. Another book I listened to. I feel like audiobooks are hitting me really really well right now, um, but. Family Fang is about a um, a couple of artists, uh, performance artists who have children, and they use their children in their art. Um, and it's you with that premise, you would think that it would sound sort of insufferably twee, but it doesn't. The book doesn't think that their art is necessarily good, and I think that that is like the key to why this book is fantastic, is because you're not sure whether their art is worth what they do to their children. And the, the, that is what the narrative is playing with over and over and over. Um, and so it's looking at the two kids as adults as how they've reacted to this upbringing where they were constantly in their parents' performance art pieces. I and love that book so much. I, I just loved it. I, I just, I just, just it just luxuriated in it and when it was over i was completely you know bereft that it was gone from my life and um yeah so i'm going to i'm i'm teaching a i'm teaching a fiction class this fall and i was trying to define sensibility as like you know as relates to like what an artist is trying to do and to me kevin is such a sterling example of sensibility he has such a clearly defined sensibility and it is so his own. Like it would be so hard for anyone else to try to write like him because it would just feel so mannered in terms of what he's drawn to as material, but in terms of how he writes about it. Like he's a very particular kind of writer. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, I, I, I really like his work so much. It's so, it's so weird. And that sounds like it is. not a compliment, but I mean that as like the highest compliment. It is so weird. Yeah. Also the family thing, if you, I, I know that a lot of people have read Nothing to See Here. That's kind of been a breakout title for him or a re-breakout. Yeah. I feel like he keeps breaking out with every one of his books. Um, but if you go back to the family thing, the DNA of um, Nothing to See Here is in that book. Um, and it's sort of fascinating to see a writer return to an idea the way that he he did for Nothing to See Here and Family Fang. So that's my recommendation. Nice. Um, who wants to go next? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do a popcorn thing here. <laughs> Ramon, you do it. You go. Um, 
I do not want to recommend a book because I feel like all I ever talk about is books. And one of the things that I've always wanted to talk about is the music that I listened to when I was writing this book. Um, yes. Because I spent a really, really long time with this music and I just want to like say it out loud. And this is all great music. And like, I want someone else to be like, oh, I should listen to that. Um, so I'm gonna mention a bunch of albums. The first album I was gonna mention is Designer by a singer named Aldous Harding, who is a New Zealand, a deranged New Zealand kind of post folk singer um, with a truly beautiful voice. Um, I also listened to a lot of music by Aldous Harding's ex-boyfriend, which is a big deal if you care about New Zealand pop music, who <laughs> is a man named Marlon, uh, Marlon Williams, who is such a beautiful singer He's also like extraordinarily sexy to me. Like he looks like a giant version of Elvis. Like if Elvis were stretched <laughs> out like Gumby, um, that's what he looks like. And he has such a beautiful voice, such a beautiful voice. Um, oh God, I feel like I need to like name these all really quickly. I listened to an album called Reward by a singer named Kate LeBon. I don't know anything about Kate LeBon. I don't know what country she's from. She sings like she's from Mars. Um, she seems she to me she feels like a like a descendant of David Bowie, yeah. um, and I love mm. that record so much. I listen to Joni Mitchell's Wild Things Run Fast a ton. I listen to an album called Bottle In by Kurt Weill a ton. I listen to Lana mm. Del Rey's Lust for Life a ton. I listen to Linda Ronstadt, but I only listened to one song, which is her cover of um, that. Dylan song Tom Thumbs Blues, which I absolutely love. Um, I listened to an album by a band called London Grammar called Truth is a Beautiful Thing a yeah. lot. Um, I listened to Bill Callahan's extraordinary album Shepherd in a Sheepskin Vest. In fact, Ooh. the epigraph the epigraph for this book is taken from the song on that album. Um, and that epigraph is Love Goes On Like Bird Song as soon as possible after a bomb, which I think is such a beautiful turn of phrase. I listened to Push the Sky Away by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds a lot. And I listened to Richard Strauss's four last songs as recorded by Jesse Norman. Um, none of this means anything to anyone but me, but if you like music and you care at all about like what music random strangers like, that's a bunch that I really like. Ooh. At Nick Cave record is also one of my go-to writing records. I love that record so much. Yeah. I listened I listened to Ghostine a lot when I was revising this book, and I ultimately found it almost unbearably upsetting to listen to. His work has matured into a place that is almost beyond horror, and mm -hmm. it informs the way I was writing this book, but it ultimately frightened me like that is a truly frightening album yeah um yeah he's a genius so. oh my god to grapple with the death of your child and to turn it into such a transcendently strange yeah. piece of music Ooh. a genius um there's a song on push the sky away called higgs boson blues that i really love and the last line of the song is about um miley cyrus floating in a swimming pool in toluca lake and it is such an extraordinary image. It's just, I mean, it's this, this collision of the high and the low and the sort of rarefied and the pop. And I think it's so beautifully done. Like he's a genius. I, Nick Cave is somebody who I truly someday would love to meet. Although I'd probably drop dead if I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Drew, did you have some recommendation? I do. I have three books that feel like if you enjoyed the 
pulse pounding page turningness of uh, leave the world behind. These are three other vacation go wrong books. I don't even know if that's <laughs> quite right. Um, one of them I've definitely talked about on the show before, which is Lydia Millet's new book, a children's Bible. Wow. Mm -hmm. What an honor to hear my book mentioned alongside hers. I love that book. Oh, love those, book. these two books, like it's, it's the 2020 pairing of yeah. like, let's start something beautifully and see how quickly we can make it go to shit. Um, yeah. Also lots of drinking. In both. Also lots of drinking. <laughs> lots of drinking, yeah. The second book is uh, The Sundial by Shirley Jackson, which is sort of, of all of the Shirley novels, it is the one that I feel like is sort of the least referenced. Uh, it is a, a big sprawling manor house. A family has gotten together and uh, a member of the family goes out into the yard and has this terrifying vision that the world is about to end and that they will be safe if they stay on the property. And slowly but surely they start to add some people from the town and she ratchets the tension up to an unbearable level and then ends the novel. And it is it is the most, oh, I put it down and I just wanted to shout. Um, and it also, it has a lot of drinking. It has a lot of like the wry wit. Uh, and then the final one, that is, it, it, honestly, it feels like the horror twin of your novel is Paul Tremblay's The Cabin at the End of the World. Mm. Um, it is a, a couple, uh, their kid, they go on vacation and these people show up at the house um, and they basically are, they, they meet the child outside and are like, hi, can we come in and talk to your parents? And immediately you're just like, oh shit, this is, oh boy. Um, and they have come and they basically are like, yeah, we have to sacrifice you in order to prevent the end of the world. And it is this gripping um, hostage novel that also the whole time Tremblay does just enough to make you wonder like, oh my God, wait a minute they might be right and it it i got to the end of it and i was just so shaken um and so it feels like i don't know i want to i'm about to start doing shelving here in my new house and i'm thinking about the fun ways that i can shelve things that won't make any <laughs> sense to anybody but me and it's like that these books can live on their own little shelf it's like the bad vacation shelf <laughs> i love that I love that too. I love the personal library uh, and all the distinctions that come within. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Ruman, thank you so much for this joining so us. Fun. Oh, so many damn this books. Was, it was such a great pleasure. The drink was amazing. The conversation was even better, which I would not have thought possible, but thank you. It was really, <laughs> really such a pleasure. It's always a great gift to be able to yammer on about yourself. And your own dumb book <laughs> can ask nice questions about it. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for your book oh. and for Lynn's book too. Yeah. Oh yeah. You and should. You guys should get her on this show. She's the greatest. Also, for all you folks at home, we always appreciate things like um, iTunes reviews. We also like when you review uh, when you give us money on Patreon.com/smdb. <laughs> And um, we like when you read books and tell us about them. 
So you can truly we love it the most. That's why it's why we do this. We just want to talk to people about books. <laughs> That's so true. Oh, and you know the tournament of books is going on right now, um, and so we. You're will a see- judge too. We yeah. haven't even talked about. Oh boy. Well, maybe. Born to secrecy. Born to secrecy. I guess we can talk about that off mic. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, everybody. We will be back in two weeks, like usual, with something. See you later, y'all. <laughs>